All surgeons have their own strengths and weaknesses. And while they're certainly qualified and skilled enough to offer patients a good level of care, there are always areas for improvement. But how do we address and assess this skills gap? And how do we enable surgeons to share best practice and standardised training to ensure all surgeons meet agreed benchmarks? Perhaps robotic-assisted surgery holds the key. We can't just have a group of elite surgeons. We have to train most people up to a high standard. And I think the, the one paper that I saw just recently showing that the good surgeons stayed good, but the less um, able surgeons improved markedly, that is just fantastic. Narrow the gap. So when people are approaching and seeing a surgeon who's credentialed, they know they are meeting a certain standard. However, getting access to the right training on robotic surgical equipment is no easy task. So how can trainees make sure they get the experience and tuition they need? I always joke, I used to go and assist consultants who are doing an interesting case. And then I remember one chap, I went to scrub and he said, why are you scrubbing? I said, oh, I want to see your case. He said, well, you can watch. Why are you scrubbing? I said, oh, I can see it much better when I'm close up. He said, you're not doing the case. I said, oh, no, sir, I'm just coming to wash it. You know, by the time we got to the table, he said, oh, well, okay, then you better do it. You've got to show that willingness. You've got to be there, speaking to your consultants, express your interests and so on. But then we've also got to provide help for them. This is Surgical Robo Talks, brought to you by CMR Surgical and the Association of Surgeons in Training. Your source for all the latest in robotic-assisted surgery and education. In this series, we speak with surgeons and leading figures in medicine to help surgical trainees make sense of the developments, challenges and opportunities in robotic-assisted surgery. I'm your host, Jessica Butterworth, and my co-host today is Martin King. I'm Martin King. I'm a general surgery registrar based in Northern Ireland, and I'm also the immediate past president to the Association of Surgeons in Training in the UK and Ireland. Mark's role puts him at the bleeding edge of emerging surgical technology, and this interest in innovation is nothing new to him, as his eyes have always been fixed on the technological horizon. And as Chief Medical Officer at CMR Surgical, Mark has been a strong proponent of advancing surgical practices and is now an advocate for robotic-assisted surgery as a means to improve patient care. But what sparked this interest and what led him to the position he's in today? In this episode, we sit down with CMR's Chief Medical Officer, Mark Slack, to find out about the evolution of robotic-assisted surgery and to discover what he thinks the future holds for the technology and the surgical curriculum. We'll also find out how big data and AI could be used to improve procedures and aftercare, why cooperation between medtechs and societies is critical to improving curriculum, and what junior doctors can do to kickstart their robotics training. I've started minimal access surgery in the 90s when it was actually starting. And I ran a training program for young surgeons wanting to do minimal access surgery on qualification. And we actually have demonstrated over the last 20 plus years the real advantages of minimal access surgery, you know, reducing infections, reducing complications, quicker return to normal activity. But then when you look at the statistics, still to this day, in some of the more sophisticated medical um, environments like the United States, less than 50% of people get minimal access. 
And yet in some hospitals, up to 90% of people get minimal access. So there's a disconnect. And so that led me to think, how do we then increase minimal access surgery? And I started to wonder, would robotic surgery make that difference? You know, it's got 3D vision, it's got magnification, you've got direct mapping of movement between hands and instruments. And so I started looking at the offering that was there, there only being one robotic system at the time. And that one also led me to wonder whether it had problems because it had been around for 20 odd years and yet its penetration is somewhere in the 3 to 6% region. So what are the barriers to the current offering? And I went to the community to say what were the problems and they came back saying too expensive, too big, different ports, different procedural steps, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when I got together with um, Luke Hares, Paul um, Roberts, Keith Martian and Martin Frost, my co-founders, we set out to try and overcome those problems. And that's exactly what we've done. So we built um, a robot that enables us to hold the instruments end on like a human does. The arms are based on a human arm and that's enabled us to replicate minimal access surgery. So we think that will enhance the learning curve. And in fact, there's a very recent paper showing that robotic surgery does not necessarily make the very good surgeons better, but it certainly makes the average ones better. So narrows the gap. That's what we've been trying to achieve. And that then leads on, you know, we started the company and I've come on full time and the obvious fit for me is chief medical officer. So I'm responsible for training. I'm responsible for part of the regulatory process. I'm responsible for the clinical research that underpins what we do. And everything we do is underpinned by research and data. We don't guess or speculate on anything. Thanks, Mark, for showing us really where it all began and bringing us up to the current day. And in many ways, you've demonstrated there how it's already beginning to change surgical practice. Many people will ask, as part of the current model of robotic assistic surgery, is it beneficial for patients at the current time? And will that continue to, to be a key factor in its growth? I think at the moment, it would be difficult to show an advantage of robotic surgery over an expert laparoscopic surgeon. The expert laparoscopic surgeons are quick, they're able, and the results are good. So that's that's on a general. If I was going to do a randomized control trial of um, laparoscopic with an expert versus robotic, they'd probably come out equivalent. However, we are starting to see the inkling of differences. So one is training. We have studies undergoing at the moment that we can train people quicker on a robotic system to do robotic surgery than we can do minimal access. And that will have a massive impact, especially in a system you know, cost-constrained and time-constrained. We think we show a difference already in pain. The robotic systems um, are less painful than the manually um, done ones because there's less pressure on the abdominal wall, et cetera, et cetera. So those are clear advantages. And then there are areas where we are starting to show improvement because of the articulated wrists, the magnification of the picture. We're able to get into the tight corners a whole lot better than a standard straight, non-articulated, conventional laparoscopic set of kit. So, you know, obvious examples are rectal surgery, um, when you're down in a deep pelvis with limited access and poor vision, where actually it makes a difference. When it comes to suturing, suturing with conventional keyhole surgery, bloody difficult to become expert and way easier with the robotic system. So I think we will start showing advantages of robotics over it. So the one thing is we will just get more people doing keyhole 
That's a huge win. But all that, Martin, as I'm sure you'll agree, needs to be underpinned by data. We can't just claim that. And that's a lot of what we're doing is the research to confirm that indeed these are advantages. And if we don't find an advantage, we don't do it. You raise some interesting points there, Mark, particularly touching on the fact that robotic-assisted surgery enables the benefits of MAS to patients with those technological advantages that maybe makes those procedures easier to perform. So you also mentioned about the ongoing research and that might actually show that surgeons can be trained quicker on the robot than in traditional lap. Could you maybe describe what a typical learning curve would look like for a surgical trainee and highlight some of those key aspects? To put training in perspective, you've got to look at training for routine straight stick keyhole surgery and as opposed to robotic surgery. So if I'm going to train somebody in keyhole surgery with a non-robotic system, the training is long. My training course was two years and it would take a long time to get the completely proficient and comfortable and doing it well. And that's because the counterintuitive movements, the two-dimensional vision, the lack of magnification, etc., etc. With the robotic one, because of all those advantages that I've spoken about, we do shorten it. So what we do for training is we have a training program that starts with an e-learning set of modules. We have a simulator So they learn their basic skills. We just developed a um, virtual reality headset for a simulator so surgeons can actually train in the comfort of their home. Massive difference. And then we have training as a team, a part of which is also on simulator now. And then we train the teams together as a whole. And then when we start going through to doing cases, they are supervised by preceptors who are very skilled surgeons who are also trained on the robot to supervise them in their first few cases. So the training program is also something that's in evolution all the time. We're looking at things that we can improve and looking at things that we can discard so that we make the training as efficient as possible and deliver as high a standard as possible. As Mark mentioned, VR headsets have been introduced to training pathways. I've been lucky enough to try some of these myself. I can see multiple benefits to the trainee. Not just the fact you can train at your own pace, from the comfort of your own home, but also it brings an element of fun and gamification. The other huge advantage is this increases the access to surgical robotic training. You no longer need the physical robot in front of you, which means many more trainees can have access. Now, according to one study, over 70% of surgical trainees believe that robotic-assisted surgery is, and will continue to be, fundamental to their role. However, there are currently several robotic surgery systems on the market, each requiring unique training to operate. So could there be a future in which we'll see standardisation of techniques across different platforms? There will be aspects between systems that require training unique to that system. But one of the things, and I said this at the Future of Surgery meeting at the Association of Surgeons in Training session, I made the statement with both my opposition companies in the room at the time saying, we need to find common ground. We've got to actually be affordable, Martin. We've got to work towards value-based medicine. And training is no different. I think our responsibility, intuitive ourselves, Medtronic, Johnson & Johnson, need to get together and say, what's common and what can we do 
that's the same for everybody because that reduces cost and it streamlines things. So I think that's that's a, a very important point. Number two, we need to drive training down into trainees, not just into consultants. Up to now, it's mainly just senior consultants. And that's obvious. That, that stands you know, if they're buying the system for the first time, they are the ones wanting to use it. However, we have to accelerate the training of junior doctors so that the current crop of doctors coming towards the end of their training are prepared for robotic surgery when they come out of it. And in many ways, I think of doing that. So one is the virtual reality headsets are fantastic. So a trainee can go home with it, train to a level of competence in terms of motor skills, on, on the robot. And when they come to their consultant and say, by the way, I can see you as well as you can, quite difficult for the consultant to say you can't participate. So that's, that's a really, really important part of it. Number two, as a company, we are showing a lot of interest in training fellowships. So getting registrar fellowships towards the end of their training. So a registrar can, while still a trainee, train on the robot to a level of competency and a level of independence so that when they become a consultant, they become a robotic consultant immediately. I'd like to kind of follow up on some of those points that you've raised. The model that you're describing, obviously, as a, as a company is very much on par with work that we've worked on together as training organizations and industry in terms of access and equity of access and having access via a virtual reality headset breaks down barriers of boundaries in terms of geography. And in many ways, are we heading towards having passports of actual curriculum that actually demonstrates some skills in knowledge of robotics before actually getting anywhere near the console? As you well know, one of the things that we as a company have really concentrated on is opening a dialogue with trainees. And I think one of the problems in medicine has been, it's always been a top-down approach. And people have actually failed to listen to the people in the mix who are actually training. And, and I think that's one of the things you guys have succeeded at hugely. And yes, I do think we're moving towards credentialing. So one of the things we've done as a company is introduced metrics so that we can actually measure performance objectively. It's unacceptable for somebody to sort of subjectively be assessed and allowed to go on. We really need to know they can tie a knot. They can suture. They can pick up and drop what their error level is. And we've already got metrics on our training program. So it becomes proficiency-based training, not just a subjective exercise. And I do think there will be credentialing. And there'll be credentialing at a number of stages. You know, you'll have your knowledge credentialing, then you'll have your basic skills credentialing. And then I think we will work towards standardization of surgery and credentialing for techniques. And that's when I think surgery will start to improve. You know, the surgical statistics at the moment are appalling. Probably a million deaths due to complications worldwide per annum. Those figures need to be, one, publicized, and two, um, the governments, the systems, the universities, and the colleges and societies need to all get together to reduce the complications, and training is where it all is. Thanks, Mark. I'm completely in agreement that metrics are key and moving towards a proficiency-based training model will better identify patient risks and actually provide evidence of performance. As you mentioned, AI is a hot topic at the moment, and particularly in robotics, it could be seen as an option for obtaining these metrics, but can also mean a multitude of other things. So I guess, Mark, what do you envision happening in the immediate future with AI and even big data sets? Can you see any future products which will help to enhance surgical training and learning? Okay, so I'm going to be controversial, which is something completely new to me. AI is 
probably the most misused word in medicine at the moment. And a lot of people are never quite sure what they mean by it. It's going to be very pivotal in what we're doing in a whole thing. And that will be everything from machine learning to advanced algorithms for helping us in the decision-making process. And in equipment, AI will also be used to help improve safety standards. Now, the first thing that's going to happen is that the FDA and the European Medicines Agency are going to start controlling AI. So AI is going to become under the scrutiny of the regulatory process. Thank goodness. So if people are going to claim AI, it has got to go through the same scrutiny to show that it is one safe and effective and it's it's cost effective. Once we've got that, then we can get away from people just saying, oh, this is AI, you know, and not necessarily giving benefit, potentially also having real danger to patients. So it won't be something you can just knock up on an app overnight and then published the next day. There are going to be greater areas where we use advanced algorithms to help us with decision-making process. Um, I'm doing some work with a chap at the moment where we've created a AI algorithm that does the post-op check. And it does it with an accuracy better than, than clinicians. You know, and at the moment, it's just in one system. It's in cataract surgery. But boy, oh boy, if AI is suddenly taking away the need for a person to see another human and still get an effective post-op evaluation, that, that's a step forward. And, and I, I, you know, I see multiple areas where that's going to happen. I just ask for a word of caution. I put a word of caution in. Let's be careful and let's make sure we put the same scrutiny to AI that we would to a new drug or a new technology. So it sounds like you've been waiting for the regulatory bodies to approach AI with the same scrutiny of standards as a medical device or even a pharmaceutical product. How far away are we from seeing this become a reality? And how long do you think that pathway is? So Europe will be this year. I mean, it's, it's making into the common journals already that, you know, there is going to be a regulatory framework around this. I mean, it stands to reason. You know, if I bring a new drug, I've got to show that it works. I've got to show what its side effect profile is, et cetera, et cetera. And if you've got a technique or something, I've got to know that it actually is beneficial. You know, if I'm training, I've got to know um, what the downsides are, what we're missing, where the gaps are, et cetera. So, yeah, it's 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 all part of a process that needs to be. And I'd, I'm not pushing for regulation for the sake of regulation, but AI has the potential to affect many more people simultaneously, and therefore it needs the scrutiny. So I think you're going to see big changes in 2023. And Jessica, the other question you asked me was about data. And of course, that is the, the really interesting thing. We now have the ability to compute massive amounts of data. And that has a lot of implications. So patients will start to know what the data is as well. We will know what our outcomes are. And that data enables us to really curate and improve a lot of things we're doing. You know, I look at my registry that we have on our robot. I have a registry of all outcomes of all the patients. That means we now can start to look at, you know, why is one unit doing better than another? What are they doing differently that could be improved? And that all leads to standardization, but standardization secondary to curation of, of good data. And also our, our studies, you know, you can potentially do a study with 100,000 patients in it for way more affordably than you could do in current. So, so I find that really exciting. There's a lot of challenges and the massive amount of hurdles, but I find it incredible. 
AI and big data sets are poised to bring huge benefits to robotic-assisted surgery and surgery in general. Boosting patient care from diagnosis all the way through to post-op checkup, the opportunities for tech are myriad, and we'll be diving into the intricacies of the technology a little bit more later on in the series. And like any new drug or medical technology, AI and big data will need to be thoroughly tried and tested before they become part of everyday surgery. And as we continue to develop newer techniques and solutions, regulation, credentialing, and even curriculum updates are increasingly going to play a larger part in surgeons' careers. So how does Mark see this affecting the profession? You know, there's so many aspects in that data and AI and so on will have an impact on the surgeons. I think surgery is lifelong learning. And so a great example is a clinic in Hamburg called the Martini Clinic, where they introduced standardization of surgical techniques some years ago. And so they know if somebody's getting better results than one of the others, they then go and look at the videos and, and, and curate them and actually decide what they're doing better and therefore copy it. And I see that happening with all of us. So, you know, if you're looking at your data and you see, gosh, I'm not doing as well in area A as uh, my peers are, you know, a champion golfer doesn't just practice on his own. He or she has a, um, a coach who looks at videos and, and gives advice. And I see this as part of our lifelong learning. So I don't see data as negative or punitive. I see it as all positive. It's there to show us where we could improve, not where we're bad. Most surgeons are pretty damn good and, and get on with it. But could we all improve? Absolutely. You know, we've got such a weak system of appraisal and credentialing. And it's very easy to game the system in many respects. And I see things like this in surgery as a way of actually ensuring that we all work into a high standard and um, we are improving training. And we all have different needs and different weaknesses and different strengths. And this is a way of, of narrowing that gap between the top and the bottom. And that's what I think we need to do. We can't just have a group of elite surgeons. We have to train most people up to a high standard. And I think the, the one paper that I saw just recently showing that the good surgeons stayed good, but the less um, able surgeons improved markedly, that is just fantastic. Narrow the gap. So when people are approaching and seeing a surgeon who's credentialed, they know they are meeting a certain standard. I think... It's important that we begin to obviously utilize what we have to make outcomes better for the patients. And I think the training community certainly wants to harness what you and other organizations are currently doing to provide the best possible practice for patients. In many ways, then, do we need to think of discussing how we integrate that into the curriculum in a more rapid way as opposed to in a more slower way? I think speed is incredibly important and I don't think we can afford to say we're going to train a generation of people um, on the robot at consultant level. It's got to be a simultaneous process. We've got to start into the training curricula of the Royal College of Surgeons and the Royal College of ONG and the European Association of Surgeons, etc. all need to get together and start saying, how do we get this? Otherwise, we just, we're just delaying a improved process. You know, if you've got to wait till you qualify, Martin, then you've got to get a job. Then you've got to persuade someone. And when you are trained and you're doing a job, it's far more difficult to get that skill. It's way easier when you're in training. And that's why I'm very keen to see companies, to see societies, et cetera, generate a lot of fellowship programs. And I think in some way fellowship programs, Martin, may well be the bridge 
you know, we've got to decide at what level do we start training the juniors. And we've got to be careful to be prescriptive because I was talking to a group of medical students recently. And there's a group there that have already decided they want to be surgeons and they want access already. They want to be going to theater. They want to be seeing training. And if I think back, you know, all those years ago when I was a medical student, I spent a lot of time in theater. And, you know, we need to look at all those aspects of making training efficient. So, no, I think uh, it's why my company has been so keen to work with you guys. I think you have a unique insight into training. Which, uh, I mean, it stands to reason, doesn't it? But, but people have in the past always thought the trainers knew better than the trainees. And that's not true. It's got to, we have to have both perspectives in deciding what's best for the system. Certainly, Mark. It's definitely going to be a challenge in the current climate of healthcare. But I think with the, the, the technology and the capacity now to kind of include as many people, although it's different slightly maybe to how it was when you were starting off in your medical career, I think what you've managed to kind of create um, is now affording us a chance to kind of bring that to more and more people. So it's certainly an exciting time to be in surgery and, and to begin to incorporate these new skills that once were not a, a general part of, of, of our profession. We've done a really fascinating piece of work. You know, one of the great things about a robot is a robot creates an interface between the patient and the surgeon. And actually, we capture all that data. So we get telemetry. You know, there's a whole lot of other data that we can, we can just capture more readily. Now, the telemetry, we've actually looked at it in our robot. And with an incredible percentage of accuracy, it can demonstrate the difference between a skilled surgeon and an unskilled surgeon. And then that goes forward to, you know, there will be surgical tasks that can be assessed by the robot. We're already doing it within our training. So that takes away the need for that trainee to be in front of a trainer. And they can sit at home and practice, and then they can be measured at home to the point that they get to a level of competency. We know that some surgeons will get on the system and two hours later will be good to go and others at 12 and 14 hours will be good to go. It's like ball skills. But how exciting if we can put that objectivity in so the guy or the girl goes home, practices on their simulator and then comes back and says to me, by the way, I'm now at the level of, a, of an expert practitioner in terms of the basic skills. Goodness, then you start your surgery at, at so much of a higher level, and I think we'll just see the improvement. You know, when I was training juniors, we had people coming to theater wanting to assist or do surgery who couldn't suture properly on the laparoscope. Now, that just goes away with the simulators and the proficiency-based training, but then we've got to fulfill the aim, which is to get those trainees working. In truth, do you think a consultant surgeon learns in a robot that much quicker than a trainee surgeon? I'm not convinced. They all need to go through the same training pathway and aim to get to the same level of skill. As we said at the start of this, I think we'll wait for the data and more of that data to come to light, Mark. But I, I won't answer that question on the podcast today. That's absolutely it. I think we live in an evidence-based world and, and training is the same. The big challenge is governments around the world have to start acknowledging that they need to invest more in perhaps surgical training. It's gone on too long that we've had inadequate training and we've had inadequate standards. You know, the airline industry would never tolerate these levels. You know, the deaths 
per billion hours of use in the airline industry is about 0.5 deaths per billion hours. In medicine, it's 100 deaths per billion hours. 100,000 deaths, I mean. So we have a long way to go. But, you know, the joke always is, you know, why do pilots do safety so much better than doctors? Well, if they get it wrong, they die with their plane. Surgeons don't die with their patients. And so their drive to high levels of safety are very personal. But I think I look at the young surgeons that I work with now and so on, and I, I think they are massively motivated to high standards and improvement across the board. We've talked a lot today about the future of robotic-assisted surgery, future technology, future regulation, and even the future curriculum. And while we can't fit a detailed look into each of these themes in a single episode, we'll be diving into these topics in much greater detail throughout the series. But as well as looking at the advances to come, we want to find out what surgical trainees can do now to get the most out of their tuition and prepare themselves as the technologies and practices of the profession continue to advance. And as someone with years of surgical experience and his finger on the pulse when it comes to the latest and greatest in surgical technology, who better to ask than Mark? They've got to be proactive themselves. They've got to approach the consultants that they're working with and they've got to express their interest. To be taken seriously, you've got to demonstrate your willingness as well. You know, it, it, consultants are going to hand it over to you. I always joke, I used to go and assist consultants who are doing an interesting case. And then I remember one chap, I went to scrub and he said, why are you scrubbing? I said, oh, I want to see your case. He said, well, you can watch. Why are you scrubbing? I said, oh, I can see it much better when I'm close up. He said, you're not doing the case. I said, no, I know, sir. I'm just, I'm just coming to wash it. You know, by the time we got to the table, he said, oh, well, okay, then you better do it. You've got to show that willingness. You've got to be there. Get speaking to your consultants, express your interest and so on. But then we've also got to provide help for them. And that's what I hope we can do with our virtual realities. So a trainee could approach us, I'm hoping, in the near future. And they can do our online module. They can train it. That's It's not expensive. And then we could lend them a headset and they could do the training. So they get the basic skills. So then they become altogether more useful in theater. And it's much easier for the consultant to teach them to do an operation if they can do all the bits and bobs um, leading up to it. People have gone to theater to do things basically missing the absolutely basic skills. And then the next big step is procedural training. We as a community of surgeons have to decide what the best steps of a technique are. And we have got to agree to a standardization because until we standardize, we can't evaluate. But once we standardize, we can evaluate. Then we can start saying what the good points are and the bad points. But when you've got standardization, I think that will also speed training. Because then you can actually take a surgeon and say, this is what we think the best. Step one, step two, step three, step four. And then I think we start having an enormous impact. It will speed training. It will improve acquisition. Yeah, very exciting area. It sounds it. And I mean, my next question was going to be, what was your vision for the future of robotic assisted surgery and training? But it sounds like standardization might be the key take home message here. And maybe advances in data and AI can help obtain performance metrics, which will help drive up standardization. I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, that's a big one. I would be very surprised in 10 years time if robotic surgery isn't the dominant form of surgery for soft tissue surgery. 
and in fact for many solid tissue surgeries as well. I'm willing to stick my neck out there and say I think that's going to be ergonomic advantages for the surgeon, um, reduced time training to get to high levels of acquisition, and then standardization. And then because of the robot, adding all these other things in, the interface between patient and surgeon, the ability to capture large quantities of data that help you assess performance and, and outcome. And then, of course, you do start adding in all the add-ons. You know, you can have early warning systems. So the robot, if you're about to deploy your advanced energy and it's not in sight, it could say instrument not in sight and stop you actually burning something inadvertently. There will be navigational skills that come with image overlay, enabling us to plan our surgery better, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you know, the, the anesthetists are getting early warning systems as well. So it all goes into it as well, where it starts to say, by the way, parameters A, B, C, and D have been noticed. You probably have the following getting ready to happen. So I think we are in a renaissance of surgery. I think surgery sat down with these appalling statistics. It's got away for long, and then people said, oh, education, this is all a bit soft and fluffy. Oh, no, it all put together comes down to more efficient training with better outcomes. We have to know whether things are good, bad, or indifferent. You know, I always give this example in, in the United States where they did a randomized controlled trial for arthroscopic knee surgery, and that was the standard of care for people with painful knees. And then they did a prospective randomized controlled trial of arthroscopy versus placebo operation where they just got a cut on the skin. And um, the results in terms of improvement in symptoms was equal in the two groups, but the group with the cut on the skin had far less complications, so it was the superior operation. And that was the end of unnecessary arthroscopy. And that's what we want to do in medicine, you know, make sure what we're doing is good, right and that we are training people well to do it accurately and safely. Safety is of course paramount when it comes to surgery and once new technologies and procedures have proven to be safe only then can surgeons and patients start to reap the benefits of these advances. Benefits such as narrowing the gap between skilled and less skilled surgeons will provide a tremendous boost to overall patient care. But in order to grant patients access to emerging tech and practices, educational institutions, technology providers and medical regulators need to come together to agree on curriculums and standards. And the sooner they can, the better. However, until then and until robotic-assisted surgical training in VR becomes more widely available, surgical trainees need to be proactive and seek out training opportunities with consultants if they want to make a head start on getting to grips with the latest in surgical robotics. And that's it for this episode of Surgical RoboTalks. A huge thanks to Mark Slack, Chief Medical Officer at CMR Surgical, for joining us today. If you enjoyed our discussion, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to our show. And join us next time when we'll be speaking with consultant laparoscopic and robotic pelvic surgeon Nahid Gull about developing curriculums in robotic-assisted surgery. <laughs>